This morning, as we think about life beyond the rubble, we are looking at a sermon series of both Ezra and Nehemiah. Last week, we were in Ezra. This morning, we jump over to Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter 1 this morning, beginning with verse 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev on the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel which have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, and we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people, but if you will return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king in the month of Nisan on the 20th year of King Artaxerxes when wine was before him. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place where my father's graves lie in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah to, Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me with the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me a given time, given at the time given him. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And let the letter of Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. They used to have a favorite 
vacation destination. It was Disney World. And every once in a while, we could plan our trip. So we landed on one of those weeks when there was almost nobody there. And we could kind of work our way through the park, and there was hardly any lines at all. And one of our favorite sentences is, walk on. You, you, you would just get through the line, and you'd walk right through the line. You never had to stop. You had to walk. And every once in a while, we'd get one of those rides where we could just walk on. But that wasn't the top of the pyramid. The top of the pyramid is that when you rode the ride, there was still nobody in line. And the cast member would say to you, you want to go again? Now let me tell you, the answer to that question is always yes. If you get to ride that ride a second time without having to stand in line, without having to go through the queue and all of those things, the answer to that question is, do you want to go again? The answer is yes. Now, not all of life is like Disney World. There are other times when someone asks you, do you want to go again? That you're like, oh, no, 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 I do not want to go again. In Nehemiah chapter 1, we have an interesting moment. This is Nehemiah who is there in captivity still, and his brother comes to visit, coming back from Hanan, coming back from Judah. And he asks his brother, because Nehemiah cares about the things of Jerusalem, he cares about the things of Judah, he cares about the promised land, and he asks his brother, how are things in Jerusalem? Now, what I don't know, because the text doesn't tell us, I don't know what Nehemiah expected the answer to be. You see, I think he could have expected to hear a great report you see, 90 years earlier in the passage that we looked at last week, the emperor uh, Cyrus had allowed the people to go. And remember, he released them from captivity. He emancipated them from their captivity. He gave them permission to fundraise. He, he even emptied the, 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 the treasury of the stolen material from the temple and gave it back to them. And they have rebuilt the temple. And so a couple of generations have, have gone back to Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah could have had an expectation that said, oh man, I bet you Jerusalem is hopping. I bet you it's great. I bet you it's wonderful. I bet you the temple looks great. I, I bet you it's, it's just a success story. And maybe he expected that. But it's also possible because Nehemiah was a person who understood infrastructure. He was a person who understood how cities worked. It may have been that he asked this because he was worried about the city. It may have been that he had been hearing some reports trickle back that the city was not doing well. And so whatever Nehemiah was expecting from the answer, the answer that he got devastated him because it was worse than he expected. How are the people in Jerusalem? How is the city? And it tells us the answer is that the city and the people are in great trouble and they are in shame. It's an embarrassment what is happening there. And it tells us that in that moment he wept and he mourned and he grieved because what happened is they've been rubbled again. 
in Ezra. They went back to Jerusalem because the temple was in rubble. In this place, the emphasis is the city is in rubble because the walls have been torn down and they have been burned and there is no distinction where the city is and it is an embarrassment. It is a shame. It is a crisis. It is great difficulty. They've been rubbled again. I got to tell you, None of us look forward to crisis. None of us look forward to hard times. But I don't know, there, there's something inside of us that sometimes kind of feels like, all right, if I have to go through one great crisis in life, okay. Everybody has to deal with one great crisis in life. That's not how it happens, though, is it? Sometimes the crises seem to come like a train. They just hooked one to the other. And sometimes you'll be sitting here in traffic waiting for that train to come by, and you just kind of look and say, is that the last car? Is that the last car? Am I going to be able to go now? Am I going to be No, it's just more trouble, more trains. The, the troubles keep coming. And in fact, the idea of having just limited to just one great crisis in life, man, some of us have lost count of how many crises that we've had to face. And there is an exhaustion that comes with that that says, wait a minute, I have exceeded. I have exceeded the amount of rubble that I need to deal with in my life. But I have good news for you. This morning I want you to know that the good news is that there is life beyond the rubble because God isn't finished. There is life beyond the rubble because God isn't finished. i got to tell you, just to be transparent for a moment, man, when we've started to deal with COVID again and had to rearrange church schedules and church activities, I'm like, no, no, we're done with that. I got the T-shirt. We earned the merit badge. We don't have to go back to that. But at least... For a small window, here we are. But the good news is that there is life beyond the rubble because God is not finished. You see, Nehemiah, we're going to discover, was a rubble overcomer. And you and I are called and gifted and equipped and are going to be blessed with the opportunity to be rubble overcomers ourselves. So what do we learn from Nehemiah chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2? Number one, the first thing that I think we notice is that one person can make a difference. One person can make a difference. Now what's interesting here is that both the rubble of the temple and the rubble of the walls is going to be solved. Because God's going to stir and he's going to move. And the rubble of the temple is going to be solved. And the rubble of the walls is going to be solved. And the rubble of the city is going to be solved. And the rubble of their faith is going to be solved. But what's interesting is that when God chose to move to repair the rubble of the temple, he did it through the King Cyrus. But when he chooses to repair the rubble of the walls, it's just Nehemiah. It's, it's Nehemiah. It is just a guy with a job. 
And that's the person that God is going to use to restore the walls of that city. Now, I say one person can make a difference. But what you see on the screen there that really what I mean to say is that one more person can make a difference. Because the reality is it's almost never a situation where just one person does it. But almost anything that we see happen, it may be one person who tipped the scale. It may be one person who made the difference, but only because they are standing on the shoulders of the people who went before them. In fact, even Nehemiah in this moment, he is stirred and he is moved because his brother Hanani came back and brought this message. All of the things are possible in the city of Jerusalem because of the generation before them that went and rebuilt the temple. So I want to draw this distinction. There are very few times that you are a solo hero in any story. But I will tell you that there are many times when what, need, what is needed to tip the scales is one more person to shift to what they're doing and who they are. One more person to show up. One more person to engage in what's happening. And Nehemiah, in this passage of Scripture, becomes that one more person. Now, it is interesting because, uh, you know, I just said Nehemiah is a guy, just a guy with a job. Now, the thing is, he, he, he slides in in the middle of the story. He, he slides in. I heard the story of uh, my brother Hanani, and it broke my heart, and I, and I just prayed, and I, I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. And then he just slips in this one sentence at the end of chapter 1. He says, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, for the most part, we don't have cupbearers today. Your house ain't so fancy that you got somebody at the house just to bear your cups. Uh, that, that's probably not what what is happening. But so as Nehemiah had an important position, he was the person that probably as cupbearer had a pretty good understanding of the king's favorite wines, where to get them, what seasons, all those kinds of things. He probably had selected some really fancy cups to serve that wine in uh, as well. But the cupbearer had a more important job than just getting the king his favorite's wines. The cupbearer had the task of making sure that those wines were safe to consume. See, I, I got to tell you, almost every ancient king, their, their first name was paranoid. Chances are they got to be king because they had killed the person before them. Hey, and they just kind of looked out over all of the people and said, now look at that big crowd of people of which a whole bunch of them would like to kill me and take my job. And, and so there are several different ways in which you could kill and take over the kingdom. Several of them involve a large army. Not everybody has a large army. Some of them would involve a suicide mission where you sneak in and probably it's going to cost your life, but you can take out the king as well. But one of the most popular ways of getting rid of the king without an army and without a suicide job there's a little something-something in somebody's drink or a little something-something in somebody's food. And so the cupbearer not only said, now, king, now this is a great vintage, he also had to drink that wine just to show that it hadn't been poisoned. Now, you don't think that improves your prayer life? If you are the person who is going to test whether everything is going 
to be safe and not poison? I mean, you can say, I'm pretty sure it's not poison. Well, why don't you drink it first? It kind of reminds me of some of the original salespersons for bulletproof vests. Have you seen any of these pictures? I pulled a couple of them off the, the internet. Uh, the first one here, this guy, this, I think this is the inventor of the bulletproof vest. And, and so he just says, shoot me. I don't know, you, you got to believe in your vest. Uh, the, the second one is uh, three people shoot them at the same time. I mean, that, that's, that's putting trust in, in your work. The third one here, I think is take, it's a little bit more because you got to not only trust your vest, but you got to trust the other guy's aim. <laughs> he may not hit the vest in that moment. It's a dangerous job. And so for Nehemiah, he was cupbearer to the king, which basically meant that he may or may not be taking a shot for the king every single day. But because of this, the king was incredibly careful with who he chose to be cupbearer. In fact, the reality is a lot of times the poison would come through the king's closest friends. Sometimes the poison would come through the king's own family members. Sometimes the king's spouse might be convinced to turn against him. And so Nehemiah, the cupbearer, actually becomes somebody that the king trusts even more than his own family and his own wife. An individual, one person, can make a huge difference. Now, I also want you to see that godly character can expand our influence. Godly character expands our influence. Because how did Nehemiah get to be cupbearer? He didn't win a lottery. The, the, the king did not just say, you know what, you're a good-looking guy. Why don't you be my cupbearer? He had to know that this cupbearer could be someone that he trusted. Now, again, we don't have the backstory on Nehemiah but I think I can say with some degree of certainty because of how much the king depended on his cupbearer that Nehemiah had been watched for some time. And Nehemiah was the kind of person who could be depended on. Nehemiah showed up to work on time. Nehemiah watched his mouth. He didn't gossip. He didn't hang out with the wrong people. Nehemiah was the kind of person that was the same person no matter who he was with and no matter where he was. Nehemiah was a person who worked hard. And I think of significant interest is that Nehemiah, that Nehemiah was the kind of person that did not have a secret agenda to serve his own self-interests. The king could trust him because he knew that Nehemiah was a trustworthy person. And I have a feeling that that king looked across his kingdom. He looked across his palace. He looked across the administrative facilities that he had there. And I have a feeling that when he made a list of people that I can trust no matter what, it was a pretty short list. Fast forward to 2021. 
If you make a list of people that you know aren't interested in their own self-interest, who are committed to what is right, no matter what the cost is, do you need two sheets of paper? It's a pretty short list. And I would tell you that your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family is hungry to know that there are some people around them that they can trust no matter what. So what happens in Nehemiah chapter 2 is that Nehemiah walks into the throne room and he bears a heavy countenance. He's sad. You see, it's one of the perks of being king that you can just tell unhappy people to go away. <laughs> He's like, I don't want to deal with unhappy people. So nobody walk into the king's presence unhappy, but Nehemiah does. The other thing is I think that there was a degree of a security issue. If someone walked into your presence that looked kind of anxious and worried, it's like going through... TSA security looking anxious and worried and jittery, they're going to pull you aside for a moment. And so the practice to be there in the throne room is that everybody had their happy face on. And so when Nehemiah shows up and he's downcast, the king says, what's wrong? He says, I don't know how I can be happy when the city of my father's, the city of my father's graves lies in ruin and in shame. And at this moment, the king says, so what do you want me to do? And Nehemiah is ready to act. He says, send me to the city. Give me time in that place. Give me papers that allow me to cross all of that distance back to Jerusalem. And here's my favorite part. And uh, can I have your credit card for Home Depot? He says, can I have a letter to the master of the king's forest so that I can have all of the timber that I need to fix the wall? Man, you all know the price of building supplies. <laughs> Nehemiah says, I want permission to go, I want paperwork, and I want your credit card for Home Depot. And the king says, yes. The king says yes. Now, I will tell you part of the reason why the king says yes is that both Cyrus and Artaxerxes and a bunch of the other kings in between, they're actually anxious about Jerusalem. Not because they care about Jerusalem, but because Judah and Jerusalem stands in between Egypt and Persia. And there is this conflict between the two. And they are worried about each other. And there is Jerusalem that's there in the middle. And whatever happens to Jerusalem is going to tip the power between Egypt and Persia. And so King Artaxerxes is no dummy, he says. You know what I need in Jerusalem? I need someone there that I can trust. I need someone there that I know will be faithful and not have something up their sleeve. And so when Nehemiah says, hey, can I go to Jerusalem? Nehemiah, says, the Artaxerxes says, I need someone in Jerusalem that I trust as much as I trust my cupbearer. And so it was because of his character, it was because of his integrity that Artaxerxes said, yeah, 
Yeah, you can go, and here's my credit card. Take it easy on the candy aisle. You, you, you can go. The godly character of Nehemiah, that he had no idea that he was building toward this major moment, but it was the godliness of his character day in and day out that suddenly gave him a larger platform to do what God intended to do in his life. Thirdly, I would tell you, thirdly, I would tell you that it is our prayers. Our prayers are where the real action happens. Our prayers are where the real action happens. You know what's interesting about this is that Nehemiah is one of the most prayerful people that we meet in all of Scripture. Nehemiah stops and he prays and he says he prays continually and he fasts and in the moment that that he speaks to the king he prays again and what we find is that throughout the entire book Nehemiah prays and prays and prays Nehemiah is not a prophet Nehemiah is not a priest Nehemiah doesn't work in the temple Nehemiah is just a dude with a job a bureaucrat but Nehemiah knows and understands that things move, that things will happen because of his prayers. Now, I want you to notice just a couple of things about Nehemiah's prayers in this place. Nehemiah prays for long periods of time of focused prayer. It tells us the time between Hanani came and when he went in was months. He prayed day and night. So there are times of focused prayer, and then there are times of instant prayer. The king says to Nehemiah, so what do you want? Nehemiah takes three steps. He, he gulps, he prays, and he speaks. <laughs> but he prays in that moment. I would also point out to you about Nehemiah's prayers I would tell you that Nehemiah's prayers came from a soft heart. Don't overlook this. Our ability to pray effectively comes when our heart is soft. Man, we have a tendency to just build calluses on our heart because of hurt, because we, we, we don't want to deal with certain things, because there's just a survival pattern that says, as tough as I can make my heart, that's the best way for me to get through life. But Nehemiah prays because when his brother comes and tells us that the city is in great trouble and it's in great shame, it breaks the softness of his heart and the tenderness of his heart. And he weeps. You and I will always pray better when our heart is tender and soft. Sometimes a tender and soft heart can be inconvenient. <laughs> Sometimes it can be embarrassing. Sometimes it can be what we, what we don't want. We, we'd rather fortify our hearts. But I will tell you that one of the things that we must maintain and seek after in our lives is that we have a heart that is tender and soft so the things that matter can touch us in the deepest places. Nehemiah also prayed effectively because he knew the Word of God. His prayer in chapter 1 is kind of a long prayer. But, but do you notice what Nehemiah does? He, 
he quotes the story of God back to prayer. Now, that's not to manipulate God. But that is, Nehemiah can pray with confidence because he knows the agenda and the purpose and the promises of God. And so it's not so much that, that Nehemiah is, is trying to twist things around for God, but he is saying, listen, God, I know the things that I'm praying for are the things that you want to see happen. I know that because I know your word. So if you want to pray effectively, have a soft heart, but also spend time in the Word of God so that you can know the God to whom you are praying and so that you can know the priorities of God and the heart of the God that you pray to. I also want you to notice in this passage, in Nehemiah's prayer, that confession is a significant part of that prayer. And I want you to know that when Nehemiah confesses, he doesn't just confess his systems, but he confesses, he confesses his sins of the fathers and the fathers and the entire culture with which he lives. He confesses and says, this system of which I am a part of is broken and I confess that. Man, I gotta tell you that Satan whispers in our ears and tries to separate us and says that listen, that sin, that problem, that brokenness, that's not your problem. That that, that doesn't belong to you. That that's someone else's problem. Don't worry about that. But Nehemiah steps in and says, I confess the brokenness of this culture, and I confess the brokenness of this system that which we live in. We are so proud that the last thing we want to do is to confess. And so even when we see something that's wrong or broken, we assume that's someone else's to confess. And we are offended by the idea that we might have to confess something that belongs to somebody else. But Nehemiah, in his prayer, walks in and he confesses his sins and his father's sins and the sins of his people. And he is talking about generations back. If we want to be effective in our prayers, we have to stop saying, that's not my confession, that's not my problem. And we have to start owning the broken things, not just in my life, but the broken things that I'm attached to, all of the things in this world that we would look at and say, that is not the way God wants it to be. And I'm part of the culture and the system that has left that in place. That's what Nehemiah did. And I believe it's part of what we're supposed to do when we pray as well. Nehemiah understood that the real action happens in our prayers because take a look at verse 8. He says the credit card bit, uh, the letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me, <laughs> he didn't say sell me, he says give me uh, timber to make the beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I will occupy. And then the last sentence, the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. It wasn't Nehemiah. 
It wasn't Artaxerxes. What moved and what changed and what made things happen was the good hand of God. Our prayers are where the real action happens. So what's our applications this week? Well, let me just mention a couple of things. This one is, you've got to fill in your own blank. And you probably can't fill in the blank till you get there. But my challenge to you is to make the call to honor God in a tough spot this week. In a spot where it would be easier for you to pursue things with self-interest or with a shortcut to your integrity and to your character. And it would be more convenient to just Shave something off. But I will tell you, in the next seven days, something's going to pop up where the harder choice is to honor God, serve the people around you, and you own the cost rather than pass on the cost to somebody else. Have an integrity moment that honors and glorifies God in one of the moments that you might have ducked or where there's a temptation to duck. Make the call today that when that moment comes, when you fill in that blank, I'm asking you to write a blank check this morning, <laughs> that when that moment comes, you're going to honor God, own the heat and own the weight because you're going to serve others instead of serving yourself in that moment. Now, secondly, when it comes to our prayers and when it comes to our prayer life, let me just give you just a, a simple thing to remember that where the real action happens is in our prayers. But let me just remind you and challenge you that when a prayer request comes into your life this week, would you make sure that you talk to God more about that prayer request than you do the people around us? Sometimes we, we find a need and it becomes more of a conversation starter with the people around us than it is something we actually stop and that we pray about. And so whatever the need is that's going to pop up that already exists, I'm not saying don't tell anybody about it, but I will say don't tell anybody about it until you've prayed about it. And don't talk to them about it more than you talk to him about it. And then I would give you just a simple reminder. If you're in one of those spots that says, I can't believe I'm here again. I can't believe I'm doing this again. I want you to know that God has been there far longer than you have. And he has faced the rubble and he has rescued the people far more times than we can imagine. So as exhausting as it is for you to be in a hard spot again, know that he has been there longer. And he has been rescuing beyond the rubble. Since the very Garden of Eden, 
And that fruit turned into rubble in their hands. Let's pray together. Child.